This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Unimaginable billions of years ago, there was very, very little being in the world. Fast forward through time to today, there's a lot of a lot of new being in the world that wasn't there before. And so what we need to explain that is a source of being that's outside the world. Well, isn't that what we call God, right? That, that, that evolution becomes a, a case for God. If you just absolutely if you just don't take a reductive view of your own experience and of and of the philosophical implications of it. Theology professor Jeremy Holmes of Wyoming Catholic College teaches a class on science and theology, which is about the theory of evolution and related topics. And I ask him all about it on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinius, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions, and they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, our guest is Professor Jeremy Holmes of Wyoming Catholic College, where he is Associate Professor of Theology and Faculty Representative to the Board. Uh, as a boy in Arkansas, he was a Presbyterian and absorbed in his father's love for the Bible, which he studied avidly as a teen. And in the 1980s, the whole family became Catholics through their work in the pro-life movement and his parents' faith journey and his father's work as a tutor at Thomas Aquinas College in California, where Jeremy went as a student and later met his wife. The couple studied theology in a tiny Carthusian monastery in Austria where they read the great books. And today the couple has eight children whom they homeschool in Lander, Wyoming, where Jeremy teaches. We talked a year and a half ago on episode 20 of Almost Good Catholics about his book, Cur Deus Verba, which was about why God created the Bible. And that episode is called Words and the Word, How Scripture Brings Us into God's Eternal Moment. Today, I want to talk about a class that Jeremy teaches at Wyoming Catholic College called Science 402, Science and Theology, which is about the theory of evolution and related topics. So welcome back, Jeremy. What a pleasure to talk to you again. It's great to be here, Chris. Yeah, I should probably say Merry Christmas because we Catholics are still on, on day 10. <laughs> yes, indeed. Awaiting epiphany. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, do you have any jokes for us today? Well, you know, I my son told me a, a joke that delights me. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know how others will receive it. Uh, he said to me, did you know the entire Navy of Norway, every ship, has a barcode on the side. And I said, no, I, 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 why, why did they do that? And he said, it's so that they can Scandinavian. <laughs> That's terrific. Now your son is telling you uh, dad jokes is what's, is what's happening. 
Yeah, right. Well, you know, um, which is kind of inappropriate, right? Uh, you're not supposed to tell dad jokes unless you are a dad. If you are not a dad and you tell a dad joke, that is a faux pas. It could be. It could also be like a signal to women that you're that you're available right. <laughs> for, for marriage. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, the one I had, in case you didn't have one, I wanted to do one which is slightly off color, but also has to do with um, the origin of species, which is, uh, what do you get when you combine um, an elephant and a rhinoceros? I have no idea. An elephino. <laughs> so it's a slightly a bad <laughs> oh, word, and great. so my kids and my kids uh, enjoy that that uh, one. Too. I'll have to yeah. use that in class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my big idea today is to ask you how you go through the class. And there's three areas of, of discussion, the fossil record, genetic change, and evolutionary theory. And I'm curious what students say and what kind of reaction you get, acceptance, relief, skepticism, outright rebellion, and maybe not just from the students, but also from your colleagues in academia. This is a hot topic, but also one people are loath to talk about honestly and with a, you know, like in a, with vulnerability, I should say. And how do we talk about these things with outsiders who are committed to science, uh, in air quotes, without ever thinking scientifically about it? That is treating science as a treating science as a method of inquiry instead of a body of established doctrine. Um, does that does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, and you know, I, maybe I should set the context of where mm -hmm. the course fits in the whole Wyoming Catholic College curriculum. And and for clarity, I should say Wyoming Catholic has a a fully integrated curriculum where every course is designed in relation to all the others. Uh, so I, as a professor, I don't just edit my course at will. I it's it's a great team effort. So this is the culmination of their their four year journey in science, and the the way we pitch it to the students is. Okay, having thought about science and thought about scientific method, let's try to apply what we know to a real question that people wonder about today. So in a way, the course could be on climate change. You know, mm -hmm. just, we just need a topic that people get emotional about. Yes. Uh, but we've, we've stayed with evolution because um, perhaps more than climate change, uh, it, it seems to have implications for Catholic belief, right? And, uh, and so... Um, despite all the emotion that would gravitate around climate change, um, this staying with, with, with evolution gives us the chance to divide the course into kind of three parts, not equal parts uh, in terms of the time we give them. But the first largest part of the semester is just looking at the science and trying to look at the science scientifically. And then we have a shorter portion of the course where we, um, we think about the same questions, but from the point of view of philosophy, and then we have a, a portion at the end where we think once again about the same questions, but now from the point of view of Catholic theology. Uh, and evolution lends itself well to that that division. I, I love it. I love it. And it is honest inquiry. It's the spirit of the university, which I wish existed everywhere. I'm afraid too many people these days start with their conclusion <laughs> where they have already you know, laid their um, commitments and then they go back and, and choose facts to suit their purposes. So how and, yeah. and in that spirit, that, that that first and largest portion of the course, uh, the, which is the science, um, we, we have a rhythm of where we go back and forth between um, proponents and opponents of mm -hmm evolution and um and uh, in the opponents you know we'll have both uh hardcore creationist you know six-day creation uh, and also intelligent. is that a young earth model kind of thing yep 
Yep. Yeah, we, we, we've got young Earth representatives in the syllabus. We also have, of course, um, a number of the intelligent design crowd uh, in there as opponents. And um, so we, we, we try to go back and do paired readings where we'll have an opponent uh, making a case and a proponent making a case around the same evidence so that students can ask themselves, so which one is thinking scientifically here? Um, or is there a mix? Yeah. And in Wyoming Catholic College, do you find a diverse group of views as you start the course? Or is it kind of everybody, it's like, we're Catholics, we all agree with 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 this? You know, it we're a, we're a pretty small college um and so uh the the you know this the sample size every year is tiny and that means there's great variation right <laughs> from year to year so um uh one year you know i taught the course and when i just asked everyone up front it turned out nobody in the room really had a strong negative feeling about evolution Mm -hmm. And um, so that, you know, we had some people who were strongly for and some people who didn't really care a lot either way. And so I had to sort of ask one of the students to, you know, she said, well, my mom's really against evolution. I said, can you channel your mom? Of course, <laughs> you know, but then, you know, the, this coming spring, um, I'm not teaching the course this spring, but I, I know the senior class coming in well. And, uh, ooh, they started their freshman year with a big knockdown drag out. Uh, uh, debate amongst themselves about evolution. And we've got a number of hardcore anti-evolutionists in the class. And so it's going to just be a lot more fun as a semester, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, but it tends to be within, within the Catholic sphere, um, I would say sort of like mainline Catholicism tends not to have strong feelings on the subject. Um, but there is a kind of, um, when you get into the very, very conservative areas, uh, you, you can find some strong anti-evolutionists. And um, yeah, I always, I sort of hope for that mix when we start the class. Oh, that is so great. And so what a lovely school where, where people are thinking and learning how to think and you're not trying to tell them, okay, you got to accept A, B, and C. So good for you. Well, there, there's a moral virtue involved too, right, Chris? Because the, the, the um, and I think this upcoming senior class kind of embodies this, uh, you know, I, I was working this past semester very closely with the strongest anti-evolutionist in the class and the, and the strongest pro-evolutionist pro in the class. And it was delightful to see what close friends they are, yeah. you know, and, uh, and it, it seems like we need to be able to not only sort of think honestly about the issues, and, but, you know, throw our punches hard and remain friends. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, when I was a little boy, uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill would fight all day long and then get together to have a glass of scotch at 6 p.m. and talk about the following day. And I wish our political leaders did that. Yeah, where's uh, that spirit? That would be yeah, great. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's go. Uh, what's first? Is it the, the fossil record? We start the course off. I mean, we're a great book school, you know, and um, and when you get to evolution, it's hard to find, you know, sort of like ancient and modern, <laughs> ancient yeah. and medieval uh, text on this. But to the degree that there is a sort of classic text in evolution, it's got to be Darwin's Origin of Species. So, you know, we start there as, you know, like a nod to the venerable uh, founder of this question. And... Um, and we go through his, uh, we don't read the, the Origin of the Species in its entirety, but we read uh, some very punchy pieces outlining his theory and giving evidence from um, species migration patterns. Hmm. Uh, and then we turn right away to uh, a piece um, from a, um, I think he's from the intelligent design crowd. It's escaping me right now, but it's, a, but it's um, pointing to a real problem 
in species migration patterns, the famous problem of the monkey migration to South America. And um, Oh, great. Okay, cool. So uh, do we have to say anything about Darwin? I think we all agree that, uh, you know, the moth turns white or black depending on how much soot there is on on the walls of London because birds eat the ones that are easy to pick off and the ones who survive pass on their genes. So, uh, or the finch's beak and that sort of thing. Is there any doubt that, you know, like in this, in the, which of you is going to survive the new pressure passes on his genes? Yeah. You know, what, what emerges as a kind of hot question, but due to the way we pair it with an opponent is, um, on the species migration evidence, you know, Darwin lays out his evidence, which is really, you know, seems pretty killer as he lays it out. But then he just says, he just bald-facedly says, there are going to be cases I can't explain mm-hmm. where there are, there are migration patterns that don't fit my theory, and I don't care. <laughs> and then we, 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 we read this opponent who says, here's a migration pattern he can't explain. And we say... And Darwin's already said he doesn't care. Is 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 Darwin just um, completely biased here? Is this completely being unwilling to accept the evidence, um, or you know what's the deal? And and then and we try to get the students to think about how does um, probabilistic reasoning work, where you're trying to survey a whole field of data. And there, and then there are some da- some points in the data that are against your your hypothesis, and uh, so it becomes. What is that? What's more... the monkey problem? Tell us about the monkey migration problem, because I don't know this story. Okay, so um, so yeah, there is this um, difficulty whereby it seems that you get um, monkeys coming um, from Africa all the way to South America at a point where. Um, geology tells us the the ocean would be a, a legit ocean. I, not, it's not this is not a, a pond or a puddle that they're crossing. It is an ocean that they are crossing. And and when you read the evolutionists on this, you get things like, well, <laughs> um, it sounds like maybe some monkeys were clinging to logs that floated across an ocean. <laughs> you know, and you just think that that, that doesn't sound probable at all. Um, and, and, or maybe the, you know, the, the more advanced version of the clinging to logs thing is a, um, there were some, there were monkeys on the land and a piece of the land sort of broke off and became a floating island and crossed the ocean with some monkeys clinging to the trees. And of course the, 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 the anti-evolutionists could just have a field day with these descriptions. Oh my goodness. Monkeys boated across the ocean, Columbus, Magellan amateurs the monkeys were there you know <laughs> doing this way before them yeah. how ridiculous does this sound right so it's it's great material for making fun of evolution um and um but then the scandalous darwin anticipated this kind of thing and said he doesn't care and so yeah. it becomes it becomes a question about what does it mean to reason scientifically is darwin simply admitting that he's not scientific here or is or does this evidence against him um somehow not not matter really scientifically is he right that he doesn't need to worry about this evidence yeah and if it's a theory you know your theory is just a set of hypotheses that have come out right a whole number of times tested in multiple environments uh oh it's not coming out in this environment maybe there's something we don't understand or maybe the whole theory is invalid 
I think he could just say, like, I don't know. I wish he didn't say I didn't care. I wish he'd just say, I don't know, given what we have available to time. Perhaps a plausible answer will. Yeah, well, you know, and what, one thing that that comes out in the discussion, and I've been I've been greatly blessed to 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 I began by co-teaching the course with somebody who's an actual scientist, unlike me, I'm, <laughs> I'm a theologian by training, um, you know, and uh, and he, you know the way he was approaching it was he was saying, look, um, the fact is improbable things happen. So when you have a very large field of evidence, what would be really really weird is if there were never any anomalies. Like a per when when a journal gets a study that has it that has has surveyed a vast amount of evidence and it's all perfectly smooth in favor of one hypothesis, that's where you start looking for. Did you rig this? Mm -hmm. Because in normal life, once in a while, you know, a meteor falls out of the sky and hits a car, or you know, yeah, it just weird things happen. And so there's got to be data points somewhere that don't fit somehow that it's not all smooth. Um, and so from that point of view, you, you, you know, you would say, well, now at some point, if you keep on finding data points that are against evolution, you're going to have to say, well, we're starting to see a pattern here. But if what you have is a pattern of evidence in favor and then anomalous points here and there, then maybe Darwin's right that, well, yeah. I would expect this. Yeah, because the, the real problem is how you cross the Atlantic. And I don't know how they did it, but a floating island or a clump of trees or they blew onto an iceberg or, or some, you know, who yes. knows what the Something heck. Something that's not impossible, but highly improbable. Yeah, exactly. Because right. it's possible that you land in, in South America and you thrive as a monkey because there's nothing there like you. Just the way rodents took over Hawaii when the British arrived or something like that. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, so that, that, that that's really okay. Cool. That's a great start, and I don't. We don't know the answer. <laughs> and it's and, and one thing I love about that class is that um, no evolutionist actually knows how monkeys got to South America in that time frame that we're talking about. And um, and it's just great to start off with a with a point where you say, "Does this count in any way against evolution?" You have to say, "Yeah, it does." Does it count enough to overturn a, an evolutionist's mind? N no, not yet. Uh, and it, it's a great moment for starting to, to, to think honestly because the the, the pro-evolution kids in the room, they want to say, oh, it, this has got to be just all okay. And yeah. the anti-evolutionists anti want to say, this proves evolution is wrong. And we end up coming out of the class saying, no, none of you are right. <laughs> Yeah, you know. there's totally there's so much we don't know. And I had this talk with a physicist about how in order for the mathematical models to work, there has to be a, num a bunch of dark matter, which we just can't perceive. I mean, which we can't see through sensory means. However, we know it's there because of the model. And so once you start saying things are there because of the model, you just, you just have to be very humble and say, we don't know yet, but we think this is our best, best guess, right? In medicine. Yeah. And maintaining that that way of thinking without saying, okay, so we're just making it all up. Yeah, right. There, there's a way to be humble without saying, we're at sea. We have no idea. That's right. And Darwin's biggest problem, I think, is that he didn't know about cells and DNA because uh, he was just alive 100 years too early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All um, right, what happens next? What happens next? We swing into the whole question of radiometric dating, right? Because uh, What is radiometric dating? That is uh, the use of radioactive materials 
to determine how old a given item is in front of you. So if you have a, a, a fossil or a rock and it contains one of these radioactive materials and you know the rate of decay of that radioactive mater uh, material, then you can reconstruct how old this material in front of you is. Is that the uh, same thing as carbon-14? Carbon-14 is is one of the radiometric dating methods. There, the, okay. there are various methods that use different elements. Gotcha. Okay. And, Carbon-14 is great for more recent things uh -huh. uh, and uh, not as good for the, the, the time scales that, say, um, geology might be interested in. Um, and that's actually one of the, the things that comes out of the conversation is that the, the different uh, isotopes one might use are good for different ages. And people who know radiometric dating are not going to use try to use, say, carbon-14 on something they anticipate as, you know, 14 million years old or something, um, they're, they're going to pick a, a different element that they think is suitable for that use. Um, and so we read, um, well, we have some setup about just uh, the question you asked, what is this? Yes. And we, we have some readings on like some of the nitty gritty, the math, right? How do you get into this? And then we, um, we, we get some, some young earthers in there to argue that radiometric dating is bunk and mm. they present, um, that they, they've got this wonderful narrative where they, they gathered, um, samples from um uh this one area and they send them to different labs and they get varying results right so they say well if this is a valid method shouldn't you get the same result no matter who runs the lab um, you should you should and uh what's the window of disparity in in that counter example uh hundreds of thousands of years okay what like um, within like between the difference between fifty thousand and two hundred fifty thousand, or between the difference of like two point eight and two point nine million? Because that's different. More like that, right? Oh, that's yeah, not yeah. a big deal. <laughs> well, and, and and exactly right. That that that's and then that becomes sort of one, you know one of the points of the conversation is we is the the students have previously discussed uh, uh, had a course where they learned about. <sighs> the the real world difficulty of measuring things and yeah. how you you in fact you expect a variance in your attempts at measuring. And so part of knowing how to measure is knowing what your anticipated variance is. And so if all these problems fall within the anticipated variance, we're not worried. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, but they also have I, a- I a thought great... of another joke that I want to sneak in. Yeah, uh, go, go for it. Guy, guy who works at a museum and he's giving the tour and he says, these, this, the bones of this dinosaur, how old is a dinosaur, would you say? 65 million, something like that? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. The bones of this dinosaur are 65 and 12 million, 65 million and 12 years old. And they say, really? How do you know it's 65 million and 12? It's like, well, when I started working here 12 years ago, they said it was 65 million years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. it turns out that our methods don't work like that. They're not, they, they can't achieve that precision. Um, yeah. Yeah, when when you're trying to uh to 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 eke data out of um you know subatomic activities, it's uh yeah, it's not that precise. The um the the other thing that comes out of that class, which I I, I find very interesting, is this is this is sort of a, a in a way a brilliant move. These um the the young earthers go to uh, and they get lava from a, a volcano in Hawaii recent enough that we can just say how old it is it's like you know 50 whatever years old and they send that off to a lab to be dated and they come and the lab comes up with some absurd you know ancient age um, wow and uh does that mean that because 
couldn't it, like does it reset when it melts and cools is that the idea or could it really be that old it just changed phases twice well you know and uh, i and i loved letting students stew in this because you know if, if i've got some i you know it seems like every year i have some real pro evolutioners in the room and I, I like to let them worry about this for a while but but eventually if nobody gets it we'll we'll point them back to uh where earlier in, in our readings, we had covered that the um, the the isotope being used by the lab to date this specimen is an isotope that's that is not considered suitable for very recent things, mm -hmm. and um, so it's 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 a misuse of the method. Gotcha. Yeah, um, and really cool. um, so it, it's a lot of fun, and um, I think the young earthers have a hard time of it in this course because the the, the cases they make. Um, students sometimes feel disappointed at the ease with which we've dismantled the, the, the arguments. Um, mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll, they'll come to me. I had a few, some few times a student will come to me after class and say, are we looking at the best arguments? Mm -hmm. Like uh, the best we can find. Right. But so it, we, it's, it, they're much more satisfied when we proceed into the intelligent design movement, which, uh, tends to have much more subtle and substantive arguments. Yeah, and I think it's where we stand as a Catholic church at the moment. Um, I guess it depends on how you define the term, right? It's yeah. it's, it's it's a fairly fairly broad umbrella and um intelligent design um you know, if you, if you mean it as broadly as uh we think the world is in fact designed by God, well, of course, right? That's where we are as Catholics. Um if you but there's a way of thinking about intelligent design that can become problematic where we say, um, okay, uh, we're going to look back through the record and we're going to find these, these moments where um, evolution couldn't explain it. And then we're going to say, those are the, the moments where we're going to invoke God. Yes, which uh, critics call the God of the gaps. Right. And, and, and I think for a Catholic, that would be a disappointing picture to say, like, you know, God, as a creator, is really sort of a part-timer. He comes in occasionally, you know, on the weekends to fix something. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Of course, Catholics, we really, we really want to reach a robust conclusion where God is sort of responsible for the whole fabric around us. So when you do have an intelligent design proponent who's falling into that uh, God of the gaps mentality, it seems like um, they're, they're, they're sort of unknowingly sharing premises with their opponents. Um, the opponents yeah. will, say, will, will say something like this. Um, hey, I have a mechanism by which this could come about. Therefore, I don't need God. Yeah, and uh, and and when you have an intelligent design guy who unwittingly shares that premise, you, then you get God of the gaps. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's beyond the scope of your class. It's a, a very strict. It's very clearly a biological discussion you're having. But for me, the big ones are okay. The Big Bang, because <laughs> nothing can come from nothing, yeah. and then the origin of life on the planet Earth, which mm -hmm. is also so many things had to happen simultaneously. Like those are the two moments where, like, okay, God is really setting down. You know, He's just getting the ball rolling, so we can have a story that He can be the architect of. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we know what we're talking about. Well, no, we 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 always you know we we do have uh, those considerations in the semester, and the um, even though the focus tends to be on biology, um, we we do have a bigger picture um, reading that goes back to to you know to consider the origins of the universe. And we, you know, we talk some about the origin of, of life, and um, there's this great uh, 
text by a uh, an evolutionist who you know talks about you know scientists sort of crawling crawling their way towards the solution to where do the where do the, the the universe come from and just as they like heave themselves up onto the mountain peak of scientific knowledge they they see a group of theologians sitting there waiting for you know just and it's like this is the big bang in his mind like oh no um but um and, and with the origin of life you know i think that um that uh yeah we have to just say current science doesn't have a lot to say yeah right uh, and um and that's um there's there there's very powerful evidence for evolution um and it may be that, that they're going to present us with some new wisdom about the origin of life but right now we just don't know very much yes okay so um we've talked a bit about evolutionary theory the two other big things i see in your uh, syllabus are fossil record and genetic change what's the problem with the fossil record the the big thing that we focus on is the phenomenon of um, sort of what are called explosions in the fossil record, where it seems that like something happens very quickly. And perhaps the most famous of those is the the Cambrian explosion. Um, and you know, ex Cambrian explosion is not a term invented by the opponents of evolution. It's a term invented by mainstream scientists who believe in evolution to describe the fact that um, in the time frames that we're talking about here with millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years right around the beginning of the cambrian era it seems like things happen really fast so the cambrian explosion is about what 500 million years ago yeah and uh you get anti-evolutionists obviously making a big deal out of this because they're going to say um the only way that evolution could happen this fast as if God is getting involved, right? So already at this point, we're past the young earth conversation, right? We're dealing with people who are fine with some evolution happening uh, there, but they're trying to find uh, spots in the record that would give evidence for God's involvement. And they say, look, this you know what? I know I've, I've, I'm pulling you back, but before we finish with young earth, just so we represent them accurately, these are folks who added up all the years in the Bible including 900 for Adam and, and, and stuff like that. And they said, right. okay, if right. we go back, it's this many thousands of years old. So if you find a fossil in the ground, God put the fossil in there when he created the earth. Is that, is that the young earth? That's right. And yeah, okay. uh, that, that's right. And, and um, you know, uh, at the, at the, ex I mean, at the extremes of young earth theory, you'll find people suggesting that God put the fossils in the earth to test our faith, you know, mm. um, for in my own journey on this issue, uh, yeah, I I was doing my doctoral degree in scripture uh, and not thinking at all about science uh, when, um, and, and so for me, the initial layer was how to read Genesis and how to read scripture. And uh, I, when I, as I became famil more familiar with what we can say about genealogies in scripture, which is where the, the, the number of years is coming from, um, I began to realize that by the nature of these genealogies, you can't use them to construct how many years since creation, because um, uh, we know that the genealogies are selective, right? Uh, if you you can just look at Ma the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel and compare it to the genealogies in the Old Testament, and he's leaving people out. Hmm. Uh, so even even on fairly um, uh, you know, literal assumptions about scripture, the, the whole idea of deriving a specific number from adding up the years started to fall apart. But then um, 
also, as I can just consider the evidence about the literary genre of Genesis, uh, I became convinced on grounds that were entirely independent of science. And I, and I can say that honestly, because at the time I was doing my doctoral degree in scripture, I was an ardent anti-evolutionist. Uh-huh. Um, and well, you're so, the perfect guy to lead this course. <laughs> so I was, I was, I was very strongly against evolution, but just on the grounds that I was seeing sort of internal to scripture and the considerations of it, I became convinced that uh, the literary genre of the opening chapters of Genesis was not one that we could derive scientific theories from. Um, and so it was, it was later in time that I began to think about the science of it and, uh, consider whether whether i would change my mind on that theory um and it has got a little bit autobiographical there yeah. But, but yeah that's that's lovely very often this is cast as you know oh you're letting your science drive your reading of scripture and for me it was actually very much the other way around that that my my reading of scripture paved the way for me to be open to looking at the science yeah okay um, so when I was an undergraduate uh, last century at this point at, uh, <laughs> at the UC Berkeley down the down the down the hill, my anthropology professor, who she was wonderful, she was a you know very solidly evolutionary secular professor, and she described that our big history as punctuated equilibrium that everything would stay the same for a long time, and then suddenly boom. There'd be great variety, and out of that variety, right. certain branches would be pruned, and certain would certain ones would thrive. Which I think is what right. you're talking about, the Cambrian explosion. Right. So the Cambrian okay. explosion is is one the sort of the most famous example of that general phenomenon that your your teacher was describing, and it is a phenomenon. It's happened at various times, but sort of the superstar is the Cambrian explosion, and so that's the one we end up focusing on in the course. And, and of course, we read the anti guy who makes the big deal out of it. We read the pro guy who tries to mitigate it by uh, showing how actually the Cambrian explosion happened over a few million years and there were steps involved and so on. And he says, so it's not really an explosion, it's a slow fuse. And that just, that leads us as a class to raising the question, what does quick mean? Mm -hmm. When we're talking about these timescales, what, how do I define whether something is fast? Um, and that's just an interesting question that's hard to nail down um, in favor of one side or the other. Yeah. Is there an equivalent one for humans, you know, the different homin hominoids where there were so many and then there's only one? Uh, so say what you mean by so many and then only one. Like once upon a time, 100,000 years ago, there were Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals and mm -hmm. uh, all the other people that I suspect are the Bigfoots uh, mm -hmm. hiding mm -hmm. in caves uh, in, in the Himalayas. Um, uh, that we had a variety of early men early humans and now we only have homo sapiens sapiens you know and or is this not connected my, my knowledge of this is very scant but uh, um as as far as i have read um i haven't seen a similar sort of explosion idea or sudden weeding idea um i have seen the idea that that the line that we you and i descend from um is uh kind of contributed to the extinction of the others by yeah. competing for prey and, and stuff like that. Um, I also learned um, through a, an entertaining email from a colleague, um, he sent he sent around an email to everybody in our community uh, trumpeting the fact he had just done the 23andMe genetic test and discovered that he had some tiny percent Neanderthal uh, in oh, his. Oh, wow. And yeah. that turns out to be a thing, right? That that yeah. um, uh, the, 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 the 
of the various non-human but very close or maybe where the are the neanderthals human this is a this is a live question right of the other candidates for human besides us um you do find small wow. in us well then it's the same species if you can interbreed and have a uh, a fertile offspring that that's that's the same that's a different kind of human right there there are that would that that would be a case for them being human, uh, yeah. right? Uh, it's it's um, it, which is a fascinating idea. Um, yeah. And uh, anyway, we we made great hay about that email and how much it explained about this individual. <laughs> it was great. Um, and I I read the email to my class when it came out. Uh, yeah. I was teaching the science course at the time, so it was great. But, there's uh, a there's a great scene in that movie Gettysburg where uh, Martin Sheen plays General Lee. Have you ever seen that that no, movie? No, it's, it's a terrific movie. But there's a scene where all the Confederate generals are sitting around the campfire and talking about the new theory by Charles Darwin. And uh, General Pickett says, "Like there, gentlemen, there may be some of you who believe that you are descended from a ape. There may even be uh, some people who believe that I am descended from a ape." But I challenge you to speak up and declare if you believe that General Robert E. Lee is descended from an ape. <laughs> and everybody says, here, 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 here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. I guess we're 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 starting, we're wandering a little bit. This is not completely linear, our conversation, right. which is which is fine. Um we were we were talking about the fossil record and the Cambrian explosion. Right. Which is uh, five hundred million years ago. So little tiny creatures, right? Nothing we would recognize. Yeah, and in fact, you know, uh, Darwin admits that uh, the sudden appearance of life is a mystery to him at the Cambrian okay. period, and um, and then it it does turn out as you, that that what you said is technically exactly the solution to the mystery that th these are very tiny little creatures that we're talking about, and you needed microscopes to to get the whole story, and so nobody's saying that there's not a evolutionary story through the Cambrian period; they're just saying it happens so dang fast. That the mechanisms of Darwin can't explain it, you know, the the random mutation and natural selection, right? Um, and you get um, different approaches to solving the mystery. Uh, the 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 very strict um, neo-Darwinist is going to say random mutation and yeah, natural selection have plenty of time to work over the millions of years in which the Cambrian uh, uh, quote unquote explosion was happening. Um, your um, intelligent design guy is going to say, ah, we see God leaping in here to tweak things and that's speeding the process up. Uh, and at which point you just have to ask, why did he choose here? Um, and, uh, yeah. So, you know, what's the, that, that leaves some questions. Um, th then there's a, this interesting sort of newer school, um, uh, which is kind of a hybrid between neo-Darwinism and intelligent design. Um, this newer school says that um, the ability to evolve is advantageous and so um, species will evolve the ability to evolve. In other mm. words, th th they will evolve within themselves systems to speed up evolution that are not random, but actually directed. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so they'll say that, that um, you'll get rapid evolution because it's in, it's in a way guided, but it's not a case of God leaping in to fix something um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by that school and would love to know more about it. Um, I've just, just last year, a colleague introduced me to, to uh, um, one of the, one of the proponents of this school. Um, That's and there's, really there's interesting. Very interesting evidence about the, um, our own immune system and how it, how it's designed. And also, um, so, you know, 
bacteria, people who study evolution and how um, tend to lean heavily on bacteria because um, they reproduce so fast that you can get, you know, 20,000 generations over a few years and actually watch to see what kind of evolution is happening in response to what. Whereas if you're looking at, you know, um, apes or elephants or rhinoceroses, um, the, the time scale is so big, nobody can conduct yeah. a study. So, so you know, bacteria evidence is also a big deal to everyone who's, who's in this question. Why bacteria evidence? What is bacteria evidence? Yeah, say so drop bacteria into an environment where the only available nutrition is something that this species of bacteria doesn't know how to metabolize. And then they just wait and see what happens and um, see if they starve to death or if they survive. And if they survive, then they look at what, how did they survive given that they weren't able to metabolize this when we dropped, dropped them into this environment. Got it, because so they, many generations happen within our observation. Yep, and then they'll say, oh, wow, look at that. It took this many generations for a mutation to come around that changed the way they metabolize so they can now take advantage of this nutrition, and here we go. Um, and you know this is the this is exactly why um, doctors tell you when you get on go on antibiotics you need to finish the course out even if you feel better, uh -huh. um, because if you only do a little bit and it just knocks the bacteria down, uh, but you haven't eliminated the bacteria, you have now raised the possibility that the bacteria are going to mutate to be resistant to the bacteria to the antibiotic that you were taking. Um, and now that antibiotic will never work for you again, and you're going to have to go to more and more exotic antibiotics. Um, so this this fact that bacteria have to generate reproduce so quickly and therefore can evolve so quickly makes them ideal candidates for asking factual questions about evolution. You know, is That's it in awesome. fact yeah. random? Is it in fact guided? You know, question big questions like this. Yeah, you know, and I remember my professor back then, uh, same pro anthropology professor Dollenhow at at Berkeley saying there's no such thing as half a wing. Nobody developed a quarter of a wing, then half a wing, then three quarters of a wing, and then you know, uh, 200 years later, they had a wing. It had to be spontaneous because a half a wing is useless, which, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so the dramatic, the, in order for something to happen, it has to be a dramatic change. And for me, the big problem at that point was, well, how can things happen that require lots of things happen happening at once? For example, sexual reproduction, you, it, there's, for, in order for sexual reproduction to come out of nowhere, you have to have it happen in two organisms at the same time. And the mm -hmm. answer, which I learned from, a guy who was talking about very early fish, uh, bony fish, was that, well, actually, there's asexual reproduction, and also the same fish which can reproduce asexually starts to develop things that allow it to reproduce sexually, um, and then sometimes it does this and sometimes it does that, and the sexual reproduction gives it more variety, and so that's the argument. But then when you think about, like, well, how does something really complex appear, like the eye, right? <laughs> the eye, the... Even the flagellum, which was the example yeah. uh, that I think um, uh, Behe gives, um, right. and I, I don't know if that's the article you guys looked at. Like the flagellum needs like 15 or 42 or some crazy th amount of things to happen all at the same time. There's no way. I there's just no way. Yeah, and you know, and so Darwin, um, he has sort of the the skeleton of a response to this. Um, if, if, and it's in, in relation to the development of lungs in fish. Hmm. Sorry, not, yeah, the, the, the development of lungs uh, um, in creatures generally. And um, and he says, he, he proposes that 
there was originally something which was simply a flotation device. And so it was advantageous to the fish at the time. Ah. And even a little bit of flotation helps, right? And then you, you grow the flotation device to some size. And then blood vessels start as th that are running around the flotation device can pick up oxygen out of that hollow pocket. And that's advantageous. And so now you, you can start moving towards a, a lung. Um, you know, and, and that, that's going to be this, this, you know, it's going to get a lot more complex by the time it's you and me breathing. But, um, but he, but so his general response to what about a complex thing is to say, um, not that 15 different parts had to come together at once, but that you've got various parts that are doing other tasks that can be repurposed together to do a new task. That's a pretty good answer. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so be he, yeah, he's got the flagellum argument. The one that that came up in class a little while ago was um, a student asked me about um, Behe's argument regarding blood clotting. I don't know that argument. What is that? What does Behe say about blood clotting? It's it's the, it's the same as the flagellum argument, just applied to a different area. That that um, when you look at how blood clotting happens, it involves so many components cooperating at once that the odds of all of these things sort of springing into being out of a mutation uh, are astronomically low, but they all have to come together at once or there's no advantage. Because if any one part is taken out, the whole thing doesn't work. That's gonna be his irreducible complexity uh, uh, concept, right? That, that you have this vastly elaborate system where removing any one component means the whole system doesn't work. And he's gonna say, these are the, the situations where it can't come into being by evolution, which needs to add one component at a time. Kenneth Miller has a response to this. And, and I guess, in fact, it's not Miller's response. He, it, it, part of his beef is that the response existed before Behe's book. But, it, but it's, the, the response is, is a very elaborate version of, of saying, actually, this can come together if you have things that are, were originally serving other purposes, so they exist, and then they get repurposed around this problem. Yeah. Uh, and then that gets you a, a simpler version, and then the simpler version is able to elaborate itself into the more complex complex version. Um, so, this is this is sort of the um, with, with regard to intelligent design, you've got this is one of the major arguments, right? Irreducible complexity versus uh, we can get around this with repurposing, uh, and uh, and that's sort of one of these um, arguments that's fated never to end because um, scientists will never know everything. And so there will always be another complex mechanism that Behe can point to and say, uh, this is irreducibly complex and nobody can explain how it comes into being. There will always be another one. And, yeah. and if someone solves that one, he'll just move. He can just move to the next. So th this is an argument that can't end. Yeah, um, but Kenneth Miller is comfortable with ho holding those two things in one in each hand and saying, yes, this is true. And yes, God did it. Or no, is that is that, yes. is that a good summary? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Miller's totally comfortable with that, um, yeah. and um, and this is, and that and that sort of gets into I think some of the the philosophical side of the yeah. Of, I want to ask you about that next. Yeah, um, yeah. Tell us about the feel uh, philosophical and also theological perspectives and what what you guys talk about there. Yeah, so one of the things I love about this course is that we read these pro evolutionary authors who 
they, they may in a given, you know, well, in a given match between them and their opponent, the students may have may see very clearly, oh, my goodness, the pro evolutionist that won this match hands down. He just completely pummeled his opponent opponent. He's got all the evidence on his side. And they don't like that because it's evident that this guy's a complete jerk. And <laughs> and he's and he says the most arrogant things about Christianity and religion in general. And, yeah. you know, and he and he said he'll say things like you know well given this it's obvious that there is no god right yeah. um and he say wow i'm really torn here because my my the evidence seems to be favoring a guy who's wrong about everything that matters uh and and doesn't seem to be a pleasant individual whereas his opponent seems to be a very nice man i would like to have coffee with and he was right about <laughs> all the things that matter <laughs> Yeah, so, and I love that moment where, where where you can get sort of your emotions and your intellect and tension. But um, but yeah, the the it, one thing that can be difficult, I think, for people to grasp is that um, that yeah. You know, so in our culture, science is seen as the ultimate way to know. Right? If you can really know it, then you know it scientifically. Um, and so it's 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 it can be hard to come around to seeing that scientists when they try to get into philosophy or theology are actually very amateurish. Um, and a, 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 an actual philosopher or theologian reading them will, will have cringe moments like, Oh, he just made a freshman mistake, mm -hmm. you know, um, in, in terms of his, his inferences. Um, and so, and one way to, to get at that is to see that the, the scientific method, uh, you know, sort of originally conceived by Francis Bacon way back when, right. At its inception, yeah. So Bacon is dealing with a with a, a society that 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 is working with Aristotle's four causes, right? The 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 form, matter, efficient cause, and and final cause. Bacon consciously and then and in and in his writing said, "We're going to ignore two of those because they don't help our project, and focus on the other two. And so science, just as a method looks at efficient cause, what Aristotle would call efficient causes and matter, uh, and ignores final causes or purpose and formal causes or essence of a thing. Okay, so what is the, what is the essential, what are the, would you explain the four Aristotelian things? Yeah, so, um, so you know, the, the, I think the classic explanation is to, to think in terms of a statue, right? So you have a, a sculptor who uh, gives a shape to some marble, um, so that it will be a tribute to Caesar. Okay. Right. And, and so the sculptor is what Aristotle would call the efficient cause, the one who's getting things going. Yeah. The shape is, is what Aristotle is going to call the formal cause, the form of the thing. The matter is the marble and the, the purpose for which he's doing this is what Aristotle is going to call the final cause. And, um, the purpose is to honor Caesar and get a, get a, get some money. Yeah. Right. And okay. you can see that if the if there were no sculptor, the statue wouldn't happen. If there were no marble, the statue wouldn't happen. If there was no such thing as a shape of Caesar, then there wouldn't be a statue of him. And if the sculptor didn't want to honor Caesar and get a promotion, then he wouldn't have made the statue. So all of these are causes, but they're very different kinds of causes. And um, yeah, and when we that is such a good um, simple, sim simple explanation. I totally understand them. OK. So, so we're talking about just the matter and the sculptor. We're not talking about Caesar when we're talking about Bacon, and he's looking like, okay, how does meat rot? Right. The 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 investigation with which he paid for with his own life. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and yeah. you know, and 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 he's going to say something like, well, um, 
whatever is the ultimate purpose of meat rotting doesn't help me as mm -hmm. a scientist. Um, yeah. And the essence of meat is not relevant to me as a scientist. Yeah. Right? Um, and so one of the things that, and so it connects this, this is a very fruitful move, by the way, because uh, by imposing these limitations, you, you, you limit your job to things that you can handle through sensation, right? Uh, through what you can sense and, and, and you, you can get a lot done as the history of science demonstrates. Yeah. Right. But um, take, for example, um, a, I don't know, um, a flower that turns toward the sun as the sun, you know, go passes overhead. Um, you know, I, I think our, our sort of normal intuition would be to say, oh, the flower turns toward the sun to get light. And a, a hardcore scientific method guy is will come in and say, no, 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 no. Uh, the, I, I can explain why the flower turns toward the sun. It's because of all these chemical reactions in the stem of the flower and so on that cause a torquing, et cetera, um, in response to the, you know, the, the heat of the sun's rays or whatever, right? He'll, he can come up with a mechanism by which the sun, by which the flower is turning. And he thinks that when he's done this, he's just proving, proven that the flower didn't have a purpose in turning. Um, that's very strange because... yeah. Purpose and mechanism are just completely different kinds of cause. Um, you're right. If 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 I say that, um, you know, the car went down the street to get me to this house, and that was the purpose for the car, and you came back and said, "Oh no, no, no! I can explain why the car went down the street. It's because the foot went down and gas went into the engine, and you know, and you had come up with the whole mechanism, and you say, oh, okay, well, granted, but how was I going to get down the street if I didn't have a mechanism?'" How is the flower going to turn if it doesn't have a mechanism by which to do so? These are yeah. not competing kinds of causation. Yeah. And so the, the 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 evolutionary scientist who comes in and says, "Hey, we have a mechanism by which new life forms come into being. Therefore, they're not coming into being for any purpose." Um, it, it's 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 just a philosophical mistake. Well, it also takes away free will. Right. If I'm forming these words because the neurons in my brain are shooting this way and the muscles in my tongue are doing this and I have a computer here and you have a computer there, that's not the reason we're having this conversation. Well, that's right. And, you know, and there's a there's a delightful text <laughs> in one of our readings uh, for the uh, I, by, I think it's by a guy of the last name uh, Futoima, um, where he he draws the conclusion that the mechanism excludes all purpose. And then he has a little parenthesis where he says, Except, of course, for humans. <laughs> and you know, you have to stop and say, "Why could you stop there? You don't get. No, you can't. No, you, what you just said, Chris, is the real conclusion he should have drawn, right? If you're, if he's going to hold to his theory, yeah. he has to eliminate his own free will. Yeah, because we have, we have free will, <laughs> or if we don't, we have the illusion of free will. And the fact that I can just blurt out some random word, and that word is going to be Afghanistan. Right? I could have also said broccoli. Yeah. Right. But I chose Afghanistan. Yeah. Is that something pre-programmed in me at the Big Bang 13.5 billion years ago or whatever that this this day at this moment, I would blurt out the word Afghanistan? And I think that that, you know, the reaction of of your scientists is is helpful to look at there. Fotoima is. He, he doesn't want to get rid of free will. He's not that guy. Um, there are other people who would happily get rid of free will and say it's all an illusion, whatever. But you know, he's a normal person. You know, he gets up in the morning and puts his socks on one at a time, and he thinks he has free will. <laughs> like all normal people think they have free will. But um, but where people choke up is 
is looking at non-intelligent or even non-sentient things and thinking about purpose. Um, and, and, you know, thinking that do, do, do the, does, do, does the flower act for purpose when it has no knowledge? Does the, um, uh, what about my own, even though I have free will, what about my, you know, sort of deep molecular structures do, are those purposeful uh, given that they operate without my consciousness? Such a good question. And, uh, you know, and I think that, 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 um, there, you know, you just have to tr be careful not to make beginner mistakes, right? And be careful not to think that because you can show the mechanism by which my heart beats, you've established that my heart is not beating to keep me alive, you know? Yeah. With no, but that, but there's so many things like, uh, a, a bunch of army ants crossing through the rainforest or a million wildebeest migrating from one side of the river to the other. We see all these things which are tremendously big and powerful and meaningful, but obviously the participants in those activities have no idea what the heck they're doing. Right. Yep. Yep. That's right. And, um, and so does that mean they, they don't have purpose? Um, well, you can, you can run the analysis two ways. You can say, well, because they don't know what they're doing, there must not be purpose there. Uh, or you can run it a different way and say, well, it's obvious that there's purpose there, but since they don't know what they're doing, somebody else must, right? And then it becomes an argument yeah. for God's existence. Yeah. Yeah, which you will never settle, right? You either believe or you don't. Or maybe you get there, and it might be a moment of inspiration, not a step-by-step not a, not a, not a step logical proof that you, that you get yeah. to. You know, um, sometimes when, when, when dealing with someone who's you know, doubting, I'll, I have this experiential appeal. I've never seen this in a book by a respectable philosopher. So this may be total bunk, but here I go. Mm -hmm. um, I would claim to have direct experience of the fact that non-conscious and non-rational things act with purpose because I have had the experience of coming in after a morning of hard labor and seeing you know, a, a juicy hamburger on the table and something in me goes oh, toward the hamburger that was not my the result of my thought. It was not a, a conclusion of mine. And it may even be a terrible idea to eat right now because I'm about to, I don't know, go to a, do a medical test that requires me to fast, right? Uh, it could be that this is, this is entirely irrational, but I'm aware of this internal irrational thing that just goes for it. And, and I can't deny that that, that that movement within me is toward a purpose, the getting of the hamburger. Um, and, and so it, it seems to me yeah. that- Or that, if you're a baby sea turtle, you know you gotta get to that surf. Yeah, and I, I guess you'd say, and if I say the sea turtle doesn't understand the implications of not getting to the turf, I would say, you know, that's fine by me because there's something in me that doesn't understand the fact that I have a medical exam coming up or whatever, but, uh, lack of understanding doesn't take away from purposiveness. Here's another case. Um, my own experience as a, uh, as a pianist, when I, was, when I was younger, I took years and years of piano, and I would practice and practice and practice. And when I came to the actual piano recital, I had this really bizarre experience. I would be so nervous, and my leg would be shaking so much that I could barely hold the pedal down. And, uh, and I would look down and my fingers would just fly across the keyboard playing the stuff I had practiced for all these hours. And I was sort of this detached observer mm. watching the fingers, hoping that they were going to do the right thing. I, I, I was so nervous. I couldn't 
if I stepped in and tried to think carefully about the movement of my fingers, I would mess it up. And I think this is common to all, all everybody who does an intricate skilled activity. If you try to think too much about each motion, you mess it up. Yeah. You, you have to get to a point where it's non-deliberative, not thoughtful to accomplish it. But, but all those motions were purposeful, right? That they, they, you know, yes. so, and so the absence of thought and uh, and direction uh, is is not in, incompatible with purposiveness. You know, Pur- is that purposiveness? Is that a word? Purposefulness. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, and so you say generally, um, you know, when we 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 look at nature and we have this reaction, we see a lot of purpose, and people come in and say, but there's not consciousness and awareness. I guess I, I would say I I don't see the case for why that means why that's incompatible with purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a funny thing about knowing more that lets you see how little you know. I've had this experience teaching psychology the last three years. It's because I teach at a very small secondary school, and there's only a few of us, and so I got to do psychology because the guy retired. Okay, it has yeah. been it has been yeah. an absolute joy. It has been an absolute joy because I'm you know I'm a historian, but I've been learning about psychology, and the more you learn about psychology, which is extremely Darwinian, like modern psychology is came right after Darwin and everything we do, you know, you love your children because it helps the tribe, that kind of a thing. Um, and therefore you're going to survive. Um, the more you look into the human brain, the more you're like, oh, well, here's the amygdala. This is where emotions are located. Ah, here's the hippocampus. This is how brain, uh, the brain encodes memory. And then here's a little neurotransmitter that goes across the synaptic gap. But all we can do is locate electrical activity and say, here's where it happens. But nobody can explain how come these 86 billion neurons in your brain make you think the things you're thinking, make me speak the the things I'm speaking. We understand where it's located. And I think the same problem is for Darwin. He didn't know what the cell was. He thought it was like a bunch of gooey sponges. Now, you know, in the 1950s, we know there's actually a, a, a there's a plan in there. There's a, there's an intense DNA yes. Yes. Uh, in every single cell, right? Is, is your, is your whole, is the, is the master plans of the architect inside your body everywhere. I wonder what he would have done with that because we understand where, but we have no idea how or why. And, you know, let me grab onto what you're saying because yeah. there's, there's a really important point in what you're saying. That is a simple experience like, you know, seeing the color red uh, yeah. or seeing the color blue. The scientist can, can come in and say, look, here's all the chemical reactions. Here's all the, neurologic, the neuron firings. You can map out physically everything involved in seeing the color red. And, and yet everything he can map out is not the same as the experience of the color red. And so we, we have this experience that, that, that when you have, you know, something like that we take for granted, like sensation, there's a whole level that the biologist is just not touching. And just like you're saying, like with emotions and with thoughts, we can map out physically everything that's involved in there, but there's this whole level that's just not the same thing as the physical mapping of it. And here's why I think that's important. It's because what that means is us taking, let's take evolution to be true for a minute, right? Let's run with it. Let's, you know, let's go gung-ho, all Darwin, all right? And, all right. um, and then you get more and more elaborate forms of life. Um, for the atheistic evolutionist to, to maintain his case, he needs in a way that he needs there to be never really anything new. 
it's just more and more elaborate physical mapping. But when you went, but when you have the more and more elaborate physical mapping, and then in con, in conjunction with that, and independence on that, the appearance of a whole new level of being. Uh, then you say, "Wow!" Um, so there was something here that can't be reduced to everything that was there before, right? Uh, yeah. This, this is not just matter more and more elaborately organized. There's a new kind of being here. And yeah. so you say, so on that, on that approach, then, then it, when the story of evolution goes like this, you know, unimaginable billions of years ago, there was very, very little being in the world. Fast forward through time to today, there's a lot of, a lot of new being in the world that wasn't there before. And so what we need to explain that is a source of being that's outside the world. Well, isn't that what we call God, right? That, that, that evolution becomes a, a case for God. If you just absolutely, if you just don't take a reductive view of your own experience and of, and of the philosophical implications of it. It's such a mystery and it's such a delight and a testimony to not only what we can do here in this garden, uh, yeah, maybe that's all I want to say. <laughs> it's it such a testimony to what we can do here in this garden. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's one other thing that's sort of similar to that um, yeah. that that I had had hoped to to get into our conversation today. Yes, please. You know, uh, there are these various emerging schools that are very interesting to me. But let's just it's like okay, neo Darwinism, whatever, right? Okay, um, running with that for the for a moment. Um, that would say the world is kind of such as to produce new kinds of life. You know, it, it, it changes randomly, and then there's this natural selection process, and that's enough to generate new kinds of life. Okay. Um, well, you know, do you remember the old uh, watchmaker argument? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You find a watch on the beach. Yeah. Where did it come from? You look at it and 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 you can tell right away that it's designed right and evolutionists have you know this was, this was paley's you know argument and, and um evolutionists have have you know smashed that argument all the pieces by saying you know uh no 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 no, no. The, the world is just such as to produce these things and when you listen to them it's like it's interesting like oh so you're not impressed by the idea that there is a a a, a watch on the ground because it turns out the whole universe is a watch factory. <laughs> right, that sounds like an even better case, you know, for Paley's yeah. conclusion, right? And um, you know, and thinking about it, I like got how the neo-Darwinian uh, uh, case unfolds with 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 some randomness and then some selection. I'm fascinated by the intersection of that with the the recent excursions we've made as a as a society into artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Right. So we we set ourselves up a, a, a problem and we said um, we said, I wonder how we could get computers to be to either be intelligent or at least perfectly mimic intelligence. wonder how we could do that. And as we worked at trying to get computers that did that, that were were a closer and closer approximation to intelligence so that today you have computers that design things. Right. That, that will make apparently artwork. That's an interesting question. Is that artwork? Right. Yeah. Um, and in this whole thing, what we discovered was key was um, you gotta, you've got to give the computer input, you have to allow it some randomness, and you have to give it a criterion by which to select results out of its random attempts. Yeah. In other words, 
what we found is if you want to make just sort of unintelligent matter mimic intelligence as close as possible, um, you come up with something that sounds a lot like evolutionary theory. And so it seems like if God set himself the challenge of saying, you know what, I want to give my creation as much causality as possible. I want my creation to resemble me, the creator, as much as it can. Um, how would I ever be able to get brute matter to design new life? It sounds like after all this time, we may have figured out how he did it. Okay, but there's also, like, I've I've gone onto websites and, and I've said, like, draw, uh, you know, AI, please generate an old man wistfully thinking by a candle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, please draw um, girls dancing in the meadow, right? Yeah. Yeah. And all it does is it scans the internet for images of girls dancing in the meadow, and then it copies them, but it has no comprehension of what it's doing. It's truly random. So that suddenly you might have a, a, like a ballerina with one leg, right? It's just... The other leg has disappeared under her under her outfit. Or you might have a guy with six fingers. Or yeah. the most grotesque I had was like where somebody's neck turned into somebody's hips, right? Because the curve was so, and I was like, they make the most extravagant monstrosities that would never survive, yes. right? And there's so many ways it can fail uh, because it has no idea what it's doing. And AI has no idea what it's doing. Uh, a A self-driving car cannot tell a school bus from you wearing a t-shirt with a school bus picture on it. It can't. And every, you know, two-year-old human child can tell the difference between a school bus and a t-shirt with a picture of a school bus on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it reveals how, you know, entropy in the universe is, is increasing. So there's infinitely more ways for something to go wrong than for something to go right. And in order for a new species to exist, survive, and pass on its genes, everything has to go right so many times. So I, the, I think the AI problem is super interesting because it shows the, the limits of, of randomness to even imitate something in a, in a two-dimensional image that looks like something else, and it's really nonsensical. Yeah, you know, and uh, this, is, um, this is an area that obviously I think we're all going to be fascinated to watch over the next 10 years as, you know, we've, we've We've just lived through the, the the initial explosion of AI, right? With the, 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 yeah. the dawn of Chat GPT, and one day we'll be telling our grandkids or our great grandkids that we were there, you know. Yeah. Uh, when when that moment happened, and um, I won't pretend to um, sort of to know where it's going and and what it will be able to do in the end, but um, but I, I guess it just seems to me that the what you were saying makes me think uh, of what. Darwin says that the works of nature are always infinitely better than the works of men. Um, he's thinking because nature can work on such timescales and with so much material that her product can be much more perfect than what, than what we're able to do. But wouldn't it just be noise? Wouldn't it just be total chaos all the time, right? There's so many more ways that you can throw Legos on the table where they'll just be a bunch of Legos on the table, then they will, you throw them on the table and they turn into a, a Lego city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I don't care if you did it for 13 billion years. You're, as many time you throw the Legos on the table, they'll still just be a bunch of Legos on the table. Yeah. And, you know, and so there you, know, you get into the, the question of does the neo-Darwinist mechanism need to be augmented by something? 
Uh, and uh -huh. I think I think that's a that's also an interesting conversation. The only point I was trying to make is that the the neo Darwinist mechanism, to the degree that it that it works, um, seems to be uh, completely compatible with the idea of design in the universe. That that um, the neo Darwinists themselves take their mechanism as disproving design, but it's equally plausible as um, the thing that would be set up by a god who would like brute matter to the degree that it can to design stuff and now it, it you know you're raising the question how much can it do you know is it is it is it ultimately going to be enough yeah. uh, and i think that that's that's also interesting i'm just saying that to to the degree that it does anything um it it seems to me it, it, it is as compatible with god as chat gpt is with programmers because we we are here to, I guess, select, yes, that is a person. No, that's not a person. Yes, that's a person. No, that's not a person. Maybe just like, you know, monkeys typing on the typewriter, they'll never, ever, ever produce the Declaration but, of Independence. Or... And in terms of, yeah, in terms of that criterion of selection, I, I guess I would like to um, quit, well, more than quibble, uh, disagree with evolutionists and how they speak, right? Because the, they, they take survival as the criterion. And okay, legit, right? That that we can see that as the criterion. But I think that they're 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 often choosing survival as a kind of neutral term because they want to avoid the word good. Mm. That the, the well, they're saying it passes on its genes, right? And therefore, this yep. the new normal. They're, 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 they want to avoid saying that this survived, that this was passed on because it was good for the creature. Um, which I think survival is just a, a, a it's a neutral sounding way of saying that, right? The, yeah. why, why did this new feature emerge? Because it was good for this creature. Um, and I think we need to sort, you know, those of us who believe in real good and evil in the universe and real purpose and design in the universe need to fight to get those terms back into the discourse because mm. they're, you know, they belong, you know? Um, yeah. 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 And I don't know how to prove that except for through my own human experience. Because <laughs> that's all I got. I'm the if I'm the instrument and the vehicle, I don't know how to se separate separate the two. Yeah, well, you know, C.S. Lewis makes this interesting point about our experience that we're the only creatures that we're inside of. You know, right, right. And so we're, the rest of the world we're outsiders to, and we're speculating about what goes on. And so I, I think there's something to what you say that that there's just this absolutely crucial role for our experience to play because we've got the insider view on one thing, humans. Yeah. Or I guess maybe even more drastically, you know, I have the insider experience in one thing, me, you know, we have to hang on tenaciously to that experience and not let a scientist say the only valid viewpoint is the outsider one. Like, no, the, 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 the world I inhabit, which is a world of purpose, of good, of bad, right, uh, of design, like that world is as val is, is valid. And there's so many ways to pass on one's genes and survive that are not good that would just make us miserable. Or make an ugly garden. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. Is there something else we haven't talked about that you that that I'm forgetting to ask you, or we should should add? Oh, I, I think that was pretty good. I think well, Catholics might, um, you know, have some interest in the magisterium on evolution, but that's not a big deal. What do we say? I think we say there's no problems with evolution, we as a mechanism, but but it's all part of God's purpose. Otherwise, it's nonsensical. Right. Yep. Oh, yeah. The 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 magisterium every time she has spoken has said, um, this is this theory is okay to hold as long as you don't 
turn it into some kind of ultimate philosophy that explains all reality. Uh, at that, you know, at that point, it's trying to play a role that it, it's just not built to play. No way. And it's inside the system, right? There, there's nothing going on that's, that was here before the Big Bang. So you never get to the question like, well, why is it here in the first place? Or where did it all come from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And could we end up saying there's a lot of design in the Big Bang? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's that the Big Bang was such as to cause these things that evolutionists are discovering. But anyway, but, but yeah, every time the church has, has spoken, it's been along the lines of, um, okay, just don't go crazy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, now... She's a good mother. There are, um, in the 19-teens, there was a series of statements from the Pontifical Biblical Commission about how we can interpret Genesis that if you take those as still legit, would exclude evolution. And the church it no longer treats those as binding, but there was not a moment where she specifically overturned them. Um, unless you want to count Second, Second Vatican Council Day Variable with its emphasis on literary genres. Um, but that's, all, that's its own whole story. It's the church is sort of ride with modernism and the, the reading of scripture and the sort of the, the anti-modernist crisis in the early teens and 20s and um, what she had to say there to, to keep people from going insane versus what she's able to say now. Mm. Um, but that's, um, and that gets into <laughs> larger questions than we can talk about today about how to read yeah. ministerial documents. So let's not go there. Yeah, but, well, we got to uh, leave something for next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. What a what a privilege and and a joy to talk with you this fine day. And uh, how fun it must be to be a student in your class. Um, and just thank you for being part of Almost Good Catholic. Would you like to close with a prayer or a blessing for for our listeners? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth and Giver of Life, who are ever everywhere present and filling all things, come dwell within us and cleanse us from all sin and bring us to everlasting life. And we make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nails, spears shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. Chris Odinius and Jeremy Holmes recorded this conversation, episode 78, on Thursday, January 4th, 2024. That was the 10th day of Christmas and the feast day of St. Elizabeth Ann Seaton. She was born just before the American Revolution and was a Protestant New York socialite, mother of five, who, after her husband died of tuberculosis at age 30, became a Catholic religious sister. She founded the first community of women religious in the United States, and she's the patron saint of widows and seafarers. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Follow the band at www.gscoasterband.com. And our image, the logo of the dog, the Dominican dog with a torch in his mouth, is from a stained glass window at the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinius. Thanks for listening to Almost With Catholics. Email me at almostwithcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email. Thanks again, and talk to you next time. This 
This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and 